Doers podcast right here on the Doers Network. And now, here's your host, Donald Robinson II. Welcome, everyone, to the Doers Network. I'm Donald Robinson II, and we have a special treat in line for all of you listeners. The next several episodes of the Doers Network we dedicate to the rebroadcast of Coping with COVID, our virtual lunch hour series put on by Bamboo Detroit. Your host for Coping with COVID is David Smith, an angel investor based out of Lansing, Michigan. Your co-hosts include Amanda Lewin, founder and CEO of Bamboo Detroit, and Tapan Kataria, who's involved with Techstars Detroit, as well as the Detroit office of Backstage Capital. Coping with COVID features virtual lunch hours previously broadcast via virtual conferencing and includes topics of many areas, such as dealing with crisis, getting investors, building great products, maintaining cybersecurity, and a host of other topics. For the next several episodes, you'll hear each one of these topics. And now, here's your host for Coping with COVID, David Smith. These are Coping with COVID lunch hours. I'm a former startup founder myself. I'm an angel investor. And man, I don't know if there's anything harder in my life that I've done than start a startup. And I can't imagine how hard it is. And then tossing COVID into the mix. So we decided let's have some questions and answers during our lunchtime so we can eat together, get questions answered from startup experts and try to help founders out. Love helping founders. Uh, my co-hosts, we've got Tapan Kataria, and he's in the chat today. I, I screwed up, so we can't have five people on here and <laughs> talk to the gentleman. So, so he's going to be hanging out with us in the chat, but he's a, a venture capitalist with Techstars and Backstage Capital. And also with us again, Amanda Lewin. She's the CEO and founder at Bamboo. It's a Detroit co-working space. And she's been a big ecosystem builder in Detroit, building the startup ecosystem. And Amanda, I think you you know you know our two guests a little bit better than I do. Who who who's joining us today? Who are our very special guests today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, quick note correction: I think we lost your video again. Uh, so hopefully you can refresh, or we might just have to listen in on, through uh, through the mic. But. Gretchen has been one of our mentors and advisors here at Bamboo and in our Detroit ecosystem. We're very grateful to have her on our show. She's partnered with Lake Street Capital. Uh, she's had almost two decades of investment banking, corporate development, venture capital experience, and has seen crisis before, right? And so I think that is the theme for today. And then Gretchen has invited her friend, Steve O'Hara, who's co-founder and managing partner of Valley Capital Partners. So we're so excited to have Steve come join us all the way from California. Uh, and Steve has a background in IT, AI, robotics, all the fun stuff, right? <laughs> uh, so today we're going to chat with them and, and hear what are some lessons, you know, I know COVID is a unique crisis, but we've been through the Great Recession and the dot-com bubble before. I haven't. I've been through the Great Recession, but not the dot-com. And so it's good for us to lean on our mentors, our advisors, and hear, you know, what was it like back then? Um, quick note, our last talk, we had Doug Song from Duo Security, and he started his company in 2009 in the heart of the last recession. And he actually said that the best startups he's ever worked on were during economic downturns. So, you know, we're hoping we'll find some positivity here through this crisis. But I will turn it over to Gretchen to get us started uh, with a few lessons. Great. Thanks, Amanda. So this is my fourth market crash. In 1987, I was a young investment banker, um, and I'll never forget the utter silence of the trading floor when the market crashed. Um, went down 23% that day, which was the largest crash. In um, 1929, just to put it in perspective, it was just a 13% crash. So and it took two years to recover from that. So um, that's a data point. And then fast forward to 1998, I was, had moved out to San Francisco and um, it was the early days of the new frontier of the internet. And it was just crazy, um, lots of companies and excitement. Um, and put that in context, the NASDAQ, 1995 to 2000, rose five fold, went from about a thousand to five thousand. And so it was really 
you know, a big bubble, and then the Fed tightened the credit and the, the bubble burst in March of 2000. And the NASDAQ dropped 77% in value, and it took 15 years to get back to that bubble valuation, which was in April of 2015. So, but back to 1998, I left investment banking to join a VC-backed company that was um, quite capital intensive. Was leading about 40 million of high yield debt. Remember sitting in November of 19, thinking, if I use this money, going bank, and if I use this money, we're going to go. Did in spring of 19. Time we went public. So it went from sitting going out of business to um, to the IPO. It was a really exciting time. stock rose from a dollars to over a hundred a share week. I thought I was a genius. Um, <laughs> I only sold a little because I was waiting for my long-term capital gains tax treatment, which was gonna happen in about April of um, 2000. So the peak and it's very difficult only to sell. We kept thinking the stock was $100 a share. So I didn't want to sell it at 120 and I didn't want it at 80 and I didn't want to sell it at 60 And luckily, expecting our first child, we had to buy a house. And so we sold stock in the 50s. We could buy a house, which ended up, in retrospect, being a brilliant move because it's good to diversify and real estate holds its value better than dot-com stocks did. Um, but of course I held the remainder of my holdings all the way down to $3 a share, which is what the company sold for several years later. So key lessons oh gosh, are- can you, can, you, can you pause there for a minute? It, it went from a hundred to $3? Oh yeah. And that was wow, lucky. What, Most what, went from uh, you know, a hundred to zero. So, what, what were you feeling? What were you What were you feeling when you were in that? Well, you know, you keep thinking it's worth more because you saw that high valuation. So you feel like, oh, you know, this is this is going to come back. This is just not fair, not the right value. And um, the reality is, you should really diversify when you can, when you can. And you know, you've not made or lost money until you actually sell. So remember that now, if values have gone down, as long as you're holding your equities, you know you haven't lost that value because the market will come back. Um, and also, you're not worth what you know the stock is on paper until you actually sell it. So, um, and I think the other lesson is not to get anchored in believing these bull market valuations. That you you know really need to reset your thinking. Um, when valuations come down. But also in 99, I was an advisor to a startup that Steve O'Hara co-founded um, that was incubated at Kleiner Perkins. And this is part of why I wanted Steve to be part of the talk today. It was a capital intensive business that needed to raise high yield debt as well. And um, we were a very hot startup until the bubble burst. And then it was, you know, crazy. and. Steve's going to share some stories from that and what he learned um, going through that. But I want to say that there's always opportunities in a crash. Um, after the, um, the 2000 bubble burst, all the corporate VCs began, ex began exiting the venture business because it wasn't core to their operations. And they also wanted to take a tax write-off on all the losses that they had um, occurred. But they, in order to take the tax write-off, they had to sell their investment. And so, as you know, venture investments are very illiquid. So they were looking for buyers for their portfolios. And in 2003, with backing from large institutional limited partners, <clears throat> I founded my venture fund, Lake Street Capital, and we acquired portfolios from corporate VCs such as Intel and Dell and Motorola. And it was a great opportunity because there were some really valuable investments in these portfolios along with the dogs. And we were able to acquire these at a very, very steep discount to all the capital that had been invested. I think we'll see even more of this opportunity going forward, given all the corporate VCs out there today. But um, so it sounds like you're saying great, great time to start a VC firm and buy up uh, these, these corporate, corporate portfolios. Could be, could be. There is more capital out there today doing that than there was back in um, 
2003. But, um, and then in 2008, I was about to have a first close on my third fund and the market blew up in September and the market dropped 50% from its high. And that went on for a good four years where things were pretty tough. And so I, you know, chose to stop the fundraising and ultimately decided, took advantage of that opportunity to move back to the Midwest where I grew up and my husband is from Michigan and raise our boys um, to give them a solid Midwestern upbringing, which, um, and we wanted to be closer to family. So that was a great opportunity for us too. Um, and here we are in Detroit. So, but the one other thing I would add is in 2000 and 2008, after the, um, the value drops, one thing you also saw were very onerous and complex um, deal terms and new financings and term sheets. And this is something that probably would require more detailed discussion down the road. But when there are lower valuations or down rounds, something called ratchets are triggered, which dilute common shareholders and angel investors because it's a mechanism VCs have put in to try to prevent themselves from getting diluted with a down round. And also, um, when new money is being raised, existing or new investors want to incent all the investors to participate in a new round. So if you don't or you don't have the capital, you will also, there are things called pay to plays, but you would basically get wiped out and converted into common. Um, so there's a number of really complicated things that start coming up in financing and behavior that if you don't have the capital to keep playing, you will... Um, your investment will get wiped out. And I think that's something that we could talk about, you know, down the road. But um, I think this 2020 crash is different. The economy was strong. This wasn't any fi a financial event. And um, hopefully if we're slowing down the virus and we can get things back, um, get businesses back and going in May, this may just be a short-term blip, but none of us know. Um, but a couple of final points here on my experience after a market crash are, one, the market doesn't just crash in a day. There's multiple bounces on the way down. The market will recover, but expect it to be 12 to 24 months at least. Um, fundraising is difficult and valuations will be lower. The investors will fund companies that show profitability or strong path to profitability and customer demand. There's no more of this build it and you know, they will come. Um, and the downturn as um, someone said earlier is a great time to start a business. Suddenly talent is available that wasn't available before um, and they're willing to work speculatively. Your costs are lower. Um, landlords are often incented to um, give you deals on space to fill it up. We were able to buy furniture from a bankrupt company when we started our um, venture fund. Um, you'll find people and customers are more accessible and businesses are forced to be more efficient with their resources, which is why I think Doug said his best companies were started um, in downturns because I think you just get better decision-making. With that, I will um, turn it over to Steve, who has some probably fun stories to tell about his experience. Thank you, Gretchen, and, and welcome, Steve. Glad to be here. Yeah, so um, I come from at it um, more on the entrepreneur side. What's helpful for me now is having been an entrepreneur for over 20 years in Silicon Valley and now being a VC, um, and having raised money from VCs, I, it's interesting to have the perspective on being both sides of the table. And uh, things that I did not understand as an entrepreneur, the decisions that were made by VCs um, have become much clearer now because I can put myself in a position of fiduciary responsibility to my investors and what needs to be done. So hard decisions are always made during these times. But, um, you know, I, I can reflect really on... Um, on the on the 2000 um, crash and also on the on the 2008, um, I was an operating as an entrepreneur operating in companies during those times. So um, when those things happened, you really have to take a um, you really have to take a hard look at the business and make some tough, really tough decisions. 
And um, and I also want to touch on other things, just kind of give you an overview. We, we can talk about uh, raising money during these times, um, what type of businesses the VCs like, uh, what type of messaging that you should really have in your pitch and in your business um, when you're asking for capital. This is a very difficult time to ask for capital right now. Um, but, you know, we're right now we're not funding any new businesses we're going to be funding our existing portfolio right now and making sure that uh, not only that they survive but they actually thrive during this period but to do that you really have to make some very painful decisions um <clears throat> like like Gretchen said earlier um <clears throat> on fiber was founded at the end of 1999 and um we had some very high flying investors um, some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley. It was a, it was a really good time to start an optical company during that period. If, for those of you old enough to to remember, uh, the optical boom is what preceded uh, the dot com crash and what preceded um, 9 uh, That was kind of a one two punch during that period, and. Um, and all the businesses and what, what really happened during the dot-com, um, I remember there was a term that Alan Greenspan used, there is irrational exuberance. I remember there. hearing that. And that is a term that stuck to me because even during that, everyone was enthusiastic, everything with the internet was hot and everything was happening, but even I didn't understand how companies like pets.com were being funded. And these businesses were raising money on crazy valuations. But the problem was these companies, uh, the underlying premise of their businesses was flawed. And that's what the dot-com bus really exposed. So a lot of companies that had flawed businesses, flawed business models were really wiped out. And that kind of set the stage for the next generation of Silicon Valley. And VCs learned a big lesson. I mean, they've lost Billions, tens of billions of dollars, even in the optical business. Um, on fiber was one of probably over 120 companies in that space that were founded during that period. And we were one of three that lasted in, during that period. Um, and I can tell you there's untold amount of fiber that's being laid across the country now, it's still sitting idle <laughs> and, and all the conduit that was put in there. But um, but Gretchen was right, and I could tell you as an operator what we had to do, um, and what we had to do to raise money to even survive that period. And um, Before you go to that, can, you, can you describe a little bit? I think Gretchen was talking about that environment where valuations were down. Sounds like I don't know, thirty three x. What is that? Ninety seven percent. Yeah, something? I mean, even big venerable companies like Cisco. I mean, during that period, they lost eighty six percent of their market value. Cisco. I mean, that's. I mean, it's it's um, staggering losses. But can you kind of set the stage for like what what uh, what that environment was looking like from the investor perspective that you're going into, and then talk about how you were raising capital then. Yeah. So um, we so at the very end of 1999, um, um, I connected with an angel investor named Andy Bechtelstein, who out here is um, he's sort of a legend. He's the founder of. Um, of uh, Sun Microsystems. He founded a company called Arista, which is now part of the S&P 500. Um, very strong company with very strong fundamentals. But going into 2000, there was a lot of, um, you know, the whole issue with the internet, bandwidth was being used in ways that it hadn't been used before. There was video, there was streaming, there was teleconferencing. Um, you know, the world went from DSL lines onto fiber because fiber needed to have the capacity to carry all this new traffic that was coming online. So this spawned um, a lot of new opportunities and companies in internet infrastructure. And that could be, there are companies like Sarant, which was sold to Cisco. I mean, the, the valuations were crazy. They were sold for $7 billion. Um, I mean, massive valuations on the equipment company that was gonna support the infrastructure for the fiber. Um, and then on fiber, we were building a facilities-based carrier, so like a mini AT&T, to be able to serve the last mile into uh, big cities, New York, San Francisco, Dallas, uh, where we've actually physically trenched up streets and built in fiber 
um, and to be able to serve, you know, big customers, big enterprise customers, internet companies taking traffic from one um, data center to the next. So, um, so all the pieces fell in place for us to justify this investment. And Gretchen was right. It, it was, and she came from the world of big capitalizations. And as an entrepreneur, this is the first time we had, um, you know, other companies were raising 10, 20 million. We were raising, you know, in the neighborhood of 130 million to be able to, uh, to build this. And 130 million was just the tip of the iceberg. Right? That was just to have a, a proof of concept made. And the assumptions back at that time was in 2000, there was high yield debt available. There were big companies in private equity uh, like Solomon and Texas Pacific Group and Carlisle, uh, KKR providing all these debt structures. Um, and one of the major assumptions we had in the model was there will be capital available when we need to expand. After we have our first uh, infrastructure laid, as we get the customers, we'll have a justification to expand to ever, you know, uh, rising valuations and, and capital. Um, so you raised 120 million and you thought if we need more, we can get debt later. Yeah, yeah, or even get um, other, I mean, other vehicles that were available debt, uh, high yield debt back then, or um, more, more um, equity financing. As long as the markets were, were strong, which they were at that period, um, then, you know, things were, were okay. So, you know, in, in 2001, uh, things started unraveling. Uh, you probably heard of the story of uh, Enron. Uh, all these stories about the telecom companies and the fraud and Tyco and everything started happening. And, you, you know, the bad boy of the whole industry was telecom and optical. And that was the business that on fiber was in. So I was, I was looking behind me somewhere here. I've got uh, the smartest guys in the room book. That's about that Enron crash that I, I haven't read yet, but I, I didn't, uh, yeah. I didn't find it. Yeah. We, we, we met all those guys. I have a funny story about Enron and this, this is how screwed up they were as a company. Um, they leased, um, so everybody felt the pinch. Um, they actually were a customer of ours. They needed to have fiber and they paid us $10,000 a month, every month on a 36 month contract. And they never lit up the fiber. They never used it, but they kept on paying our bill every month for 36 months. And they never turned it off. And we kind of had a moral dilemma about this. It's like, that was a pretty good customer. That was very profitable. So, you know, like $400,000 for something they never used? They never used, but that just tells you about the accounting structures they were under. But a lot of this was going on during the time. But <clears throat> where it gets really personal and tough, and this is, talk about lessons learned. Um, you know, we... With $135 million of capital available, um, we, we started to expand. We grew, we had three major hubs in Austin, Texas, in Denver, Colorado, and in um, Cupertino, California, in, in Silicon Valley. And uh, we went up to 300 people very quickly. And, but it seemed, you know, it was, it really was just a party. It was just a lot of fun. We were growing, expanding, getting customers. Everything was great and everything looked very positive, the outlook. Um, when it all came crashing down, it seemed to happen overnight. And um, they called an emergency board meeting and uh, the board of uh, directors um, said, you guys got to cut. You guys got to cut down to the bone. And just like that, people had been with us for, you know, 18 months already, um, which was a lot of time because we built and scaled very quickly. And, um, you know, um, and in Santa Clara or in, in Cupertino, I had, I had a layoff, um, on nearly everyone I hired. And, you know, this, this is, you know, people who were the primary breadwinners, um, women who were expecting who were the primary breadwinners that were hoping. Oh my gosh. The insurance crying. It, it was, you know, the human element of this was very painful, but the decisions we had to make that night were who stays and who goes. So it's basically when people say all non-essential people or non-essential resources, non-essential expenses, not just people, but just the expenses, they were cut within a 24 hour period. And we went down from uh, like 307 people down to 43. And 
then we had to grow. Then we had to slow roll everything because we're like, we don't know when this is going to stop. It's you, just you, like, you, you, you cut nine out of every 10 people. Yeah. Wow. Very, very hard. Some that's were personal serious. friends. And, um, it, it, you know, and that's when you're really feeling. Walk, walk us through that day. What's that, what's that like when you're laying off nine out well, of 10? We, uh, I sent an email out to everyone. And I said, I'll be meeting with people individually. Um, I did tell them up front. I said, they're going to be cuts. We have to. This is it. Very unfortunate. Um, and to be honest with you, I had to justify my own existence at that point. You know, I was taking the board of equity. I mean, everybody has to be questioned. It's because who stays and who goes? What are you doing? What's your contribution to the company? If you're not building it, you're selling it. That's what it comes down to. So um, all non-essential people, you know, whether they're consultants, we had marketing firms, PR, all that stuff is gone overnight. Um, but it really, you know, during the process, you really locked in on the lesson, even learn as you reflect, as you sit up at night, you think, you know, these were pretty non-essential people and probably the business is better off with that. It's really terrible. These circumstances, um, you know, occurred, but it really forced you into some really serious decision-making. And this is about everything. And that's how we continued to roll the cup. So that was in 2001. We survived for another six years. And um, during- okay, you, you were involved in the company at this point? So I was in an advisory role. Um, so I was more actively involved in the beginning. And then, uh, you know, Steve said the company went on for six years. I mean, I started my venture fund. And uh, so I was an investor. But Steve, mm -hmm. there was one point where there was one of these pay to play rounds, financings. It was, I mean, go ahead, I, where people got diluted. If you didn't participate, you just basically got got wiped out. And so they, they went to the invest, existing investors and said, Hey, you got to put in more money, or else you're getting a, yeah. a, a massive so, dilution. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. We had all kinds of different investors. We had the traditional venture investors like Kleiner Perkins. We had big angel investors like Andy Bechtelsheim. At the time, Mike Volpe, who's now with Index Ventures. Um, we had the Bechtel, which is a huge construction company, um, who was hoping to get big construction, you know, these contracts through this. That didn't happen. Then we had, you know, a merchant banking group of Bear Stearns. And there's all these different investors who were used to different type of models. And this was really kind of a kind of a hybrid type of financing. It was much larger than traditional venture financing. It was probably smaller than a lot of the other merchant bank and, and high yield debt. So a lot of different people had a lot of different things at stake. So there was a lot of infighting in these boards and there were some big personalities in the boards. I mean, um, and you know, the ones who led the series B wanted to reprice the series A and the entrepreneurs were caught in the middle going, you know, we're just trying to keep this company afloat. And some people said, should we shut it down, take our money back? Should we move forward? And very fortunate for us, we had a very strong personality in there um, that uh, was a very experienced investor and entrepreneur that really put everyone kind of in their place and said, let's not forget why we invested in this. And it's just kind of a uh, slow roll. It's painful. It's bad, but it's, they have to live another day. Um, and what we learned is that um, we did have to make some changes and um, we actually had pretty sound fundamentals on the business. And, um, and you know, we had to go through a financing that did. It was basically a cram down because we had raised additional money from inside investors, outside investment, even that time. So there are a lot of parallels between what's happening now and then, but... Are we going to value this at a $300 million uh, deal? Or are we going to value it very low so we can get the money? We went from a valuation of close to like $400 million down to a $12 million round. So everyone just got crushed. Then they had a reissue and kind of have an evergreen policy for the employees and everybody so people could at least be incented to work there. So um, you're talking there about working with the employees because their, their stock price just went down yeah. that is 98 percent or something and so now their, their shares are no longer incentivizing them to work there financially and, and you need to, to re-incentivize those employees who are key to stay is that what you're yeah, talking well, about existing employees the, the 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 ones that were there after the initial cut the initial the, the ones that were there were very they're very skilled um, on the logistics side 
on the operations side. Um, there was inside plant operations where the equipment was outside plant where we actually put the fiber in. So those that were there were actually the really skilled employees. And, and, but the market hadn't, um, I mean, is what they call the nuclear winter back then because there wasn't many jobs. So people were actually just working for a salary. So you can forget everything about joining an internet startup and making all this money on stock <laughs> options. People back then were just working just so they could be employed and get insurance to, pay, you know, to, to take care of their families. Um, it wasn't until 2005 things started to really started to, um, to, to start to warm up again. And, um, but before, what, it sounds kind of like, like now, and maybe before we hop into the audience questions, maybe like, like what's your key pieces of advice, Steve and Gretchen for people to keep in mind as they get their questions ready that you, that you two have learned from the previous downturns. I think you said you've been in four Gretchen. Yeah. Is your audio working? Yeah, yeah, no, I have. Um, but I'll let Steve answer that because I think I sort of summarized my um, my points. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think the key lessons if, uh, for anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur and operator out there. Right now, so when you look at your plan in the businesses, um, really, if I mean, everyone probably once in their life has an idea about a startup company. But to get the company financed, to make it to be able to be an enduring company that can survive crashes and be one of the last man standing in the end, um, it's not the dot-com one. It's not the one that's flashy. You have to solve a real problem. There has to be a market need. Market pull has to be there. You really have to look at the customer. And today, right now, the name of the game is ROI. Does it help me save money? Does it help me get customers um, what's my return on investment on this type of uh, solution? So if you're um, an entrepreneur or whatever your product or service is, make sure you're solving a real problem, some, something that cannot be eliminated so easily during a downturn. And right now, and that, that it sounds pretty simple in theory, but when you look at it as an investor or as an operator or as a buyer, as a company, it really hones in on um, what you process you have to think about when they're starting a company what is the real value proposition of the product uh and right now as we do an audit of all of our portfolios you know we have two funds we have uh 17 companies we have to take a hard look at and each one we look at where are they what's the cash flows that they have right now uh and we have to do the same thing who stays who goes it sounds very cut and dry, but that's what you have to do. This guy over here, okay, he's a contractor. He's this. He's charging this much a month. He goes. He's gone. And you have to be that. That um, you have to take a scalpel to your to your balance sheet, to your cash flow, to see who's on it. I really like what you said there, Steve. Too. I think it came up in one of our other talks that by talking to your customers now, you're probably going to zone in on a better value proposition than you might've had before this crisis, right? You're really important to think what your product does. Like, like, hey, is my product, is it a must have or is it a neat thing to have? Is it a, it's, it's a nice to have? It's gotta be a must have, you know, like you, you have to get it so your, your, your customer can't survive without it. That's how dependent they have to be on it. And that's, and that's what people want to, and that's what investors want to invest in. That's what you should do anyway. It just <laughs> drives on the point. If you think about it, you know, it, it doesn't take a recession or a downturn or a virus to kick this in. You should be asking yourself even before you go ask for money, what does my product do? And how is this going to be better than the other guys? You know, is my, you know, is are my customers gonna love me for this? Is this gonna be something that will survive even the hardest of times? And I think that type of um, analysis. And thought should be going into every business plan, every product, every, if you're now in a company asking for money, um, that's, it's probably going to start happening in the next few months. Once, once it starts flattening, I think people are making outside investments again, maybe even sooner, but for now, everyone's hunkering down with their own companies, making sure that they're taken care of. I've, but, I've been hearing that a, that a bit, Steve, that this crisis is reminding us that we should take care of people in a way that we should have already been taking care of people and doing things we already should have been doing. And we knew we should be doing them. And we just hadn't gotten around to it. Now the crisis is making us do them. It, it sounds like that, that same thing. It just, it just, it just get very complacent. 
You know, when things are yeah. good, markets are good. It's like in 99, like we thought money was going to be there. So we started hiring like crazy. I look back, it's like, that was crazy. We never should have done that. We should have shot up to 300 people. But we had money. We had $130 million in the bank. So why would we do that? But after you're like, my God, what were we thinking? You know? Yeah. And, oh my gosh, I'm loving this. Uh, I do want to get to our, to our audience questions. So I love the questions that have come in so far, you know, from like Dustin and yeah, Tops so and Ida and Brenda. So the first one up, we've got, we've got Dustin. Well, so first, you know, everybody in there, this is your chance, you know, ask Steve and Gretchen these questions, the questions that are in your mind, you know, the stuff that's keeping you up that you don't know what to do. And they've seen crashes like this before. They've, I think the stock market's down about 30%, you know, and they've seen much steeper declines. So I think they'll have some, some, some great advice here. And uh, Dustin says, how do you think COVID-19 will affect valuations? Do you think you will see Series BC increasing drastically after COVID-19 settles? I think it's going to be a much tougher, longer look. I mean, everyone gets sort of pushed back to reality or jerked back, you know, sort of suddenly um, reality. And so, as Steve was saying, what, what was okay before you know, sort of isn't acceptable. Um, so I think valuations will be down, but um, I think it just depends on how long this this uh, slowdown goes on for. Um, Steve, what are your thoughts? Um, well, it's interesting, you know, when you have 17 companies, the companies are in various stages of progress and growth and scale, and their capital needs are varied as well. Um, we're actually, so on one case, it, it also depends where you are with the company. If you were recently funded and you're, and you're still in development, if you haven't had your MVP product out yet, um, you know, those are the companies that should really hunker down because as an investor, you want to see companies that have traction and that have product out there, um, market acceptance. It's harder when you're pre-product and you're still in development and the virus hit hardest when a lot of companies were just newly funded so for those we just like we just made an announcement a few days ago we led a six million dollar um, investment in a company um, doing enterprise ai they have offices in chicago salt lake and and in the bay area and uh, i just told them you know you, <laughs> right there and then you and and i didn't have to tell these guys because they were experienced founders that had built the company from scratch to scale to ipo so they know what, what needs to happen. Um, but the valuations right now are, are, are not in entrepreneurs' favor because um, the prospect for growth right now is, is looking bleak and you have to be realistic. So my take is if you're, if you're a new entrepreneur trying to get money, um, if you can get money, I would take it. I would take it. Even if the valuation is half of what you would hope for. Now, if you want to weather the storm, hunker down, wait to raise later, you'll need to find ways to finance it. You know, us, there are some companies out there that are just going to hibernate, literally just shut everything down and reboot it when things get better. And some of those companies did that during the dot-com uh, bust. Some survived, some did not. Um, valuations for existing companies. We did have one company that's building really phenomenal technology, they're, they're going to have a bump in valuation. It's because their product is, if it's going to work, it's going to be the underlying of infrastructure in, in networking. They're making a huge expanse on um, in bandwidth using a very small uh, footprint. So they had the customers already lined up and, and, and POCs and pilots. So that was a different story. And some companies that are, you know, already um, going strong. They just, one company did six million last year. Some of this just about because the customers are going back and renegotiating these contracts. So that is like preservation of the customers. So they're in different modes, and depending on where they are and what the outlook of the industries are, valuations are going to be affected in each one. But overall, I would not expect a big spike. In fact, I would expect that there's going to be a new round of financing. I don't think it's going to be a cram down like we saw back in 2002, 2003, but I do think the valuations are going to be a flat round or maybe even a down round. But for the sake of capital, if you take a long-term perspective, 
I would rather take the money in, get the money in, much needed. That's the lifeblood of the business. I would take it and um, and have a long-term outlook on it. How, how do you two recommend a founder get in that mental space to prepare? You know, let's say that I just raised at like a, I don't know, a $10 million valuation or a $100 million valuation. And now I'm looking at, you know, a two to $5 million valuation or, you know, 20 to $50 million valuation. I, I think I would have a hard time. And I know in my life, I've had a hard time accepting those as reality. You know, the, the, the new reality, what are, what are your, what are your tips to, for somebody like me to get over that hurdle of saying, Hey, this thing was worth a hundred. How in the world do I sell it for, for 50? So you're saying raise money at a lower value, right? Yeah, I'm saying yeah. If the valuation yeah. goes down substantially, how yeah. do I how do I as a yeah. founder get over that mental? Yeah, block? no, I get it because I was I always get caught up in my <laughs> with the value of it, the stock or whatever was before. Um, but I guess the thought is it's always better to have a smaller piece of a bigger pie versus a big piece of a zero pie or you know if the company doesn't survive, you've got nothing. If you don't get the capital, you don't have anything. So, and also if it's, you know, you've got a good value proposition and you can raise the money and execute, you're probably going to build a very big successful company. And so it it doesn't really matter what the value is um, today versus six months ago. So it's kind of phrasing as like that existential threat. If I don't raise this money, I'm going to die. So I've just got to take what I can get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. Know, for the last couple of years, you know, and Silicon Valley has been most um, guilty of this. They're, you know, the unicorn concept. I, I have to tell you, I, for one, you know, as an entrepreneur, you always want to have that crown. We're a unicorn. But you know what? It's, it's all, it's primarily based on, um, on valuations and valuations it's more art than science. I mean, you could do multiples of a business, what you can do multiples of EBITDA, revenue, you can justify it. But the reality, there are a lot of companies that are way overvalued out there right now. And once they hit the, I mean, look at SoftBank. Look, look yeah. at SoftBank. <laughs> I mean, do you really think WeWork is worth $40, $50 billion? It's worth more than General Motors? I don't think so. You know, <laughs> and through time, if that company ever went public, I mean, my God, it would get crushed in the public market because they're going to see the underlying financials of this thing. It's not going to work. So um, if you just think about that logically, I mean, geez, on paper, I was worth, you know, <laughs> that on fiber, I was worth a lot. And all of a sudden we had a, a Series C financing and to survive and the, and the company was $12 million pre-money. So, oh so, you know, you really have to, you know, you have to take the long-term look at, at this and to say that um, because ultimately the value of the company is going to be is when it exits. And then um, that's what's going to be. But, you know, these downturns are inevitable. You can never really time them. Um, uh, cash is king, unfortunately, for, for the entrepreneur. And if the investor, you also have to look at it from the investor perspective. You know, look at the risks that are out there you know, the, yeah. this, you know if, if, if we fund you the money i mean that's not gonna be the end of your financing so whatever money you have in your bank you have to act as if you're never going to raise another nickel of financing again. let's put it that way that's how strict you have to be make that I think money that's yeah so if you raise five million dollars three million dollars just look around and say this is the last money i'm ever going to raise for this company so that's the way that's off we're getting we're getting a shout out from the chat for the for this book uh, never eat alone. Gary <laughs> Mesher here in the in the chat. He's an expert networker, and uh, I think he recommended this book to me. That uh, you can see it's well worn and bookmarked for me reading it. Uh, <laughs> so next we up, fifteen minutes. I think we'll try to take a couple more questions here. Uh, yeah, I just want to join for our next session on Friday. So if anyone hops off early. You can RCP to the button below for that one. So next, uh, next up, Brenda. Brenda, uh, she's been, I think, on every cast we've had so far. Thank you, Brenda. Yeah, thanks, Brenda, a lot. What can entrepreneurs do now? Show profitability and excellent customer demand for their product or service and grow their business deeply within their team and build trust with clients? Uh, how do you two think that people should be, should be doing that now? What, what should they be doing now? to uh 
you take advantage of those circumstances. From um, for, for maybe for investors' perspective, how how can they? What can entrepreneurs do now? Oh, okay. Well, I think I mean I think both are really important. The um, for if you show the customer demand, customer stickiness, retention, customers love your product. I think that that fundamentally is critical. Um, now, if you you know if today you're doing things where you giving it away in this environment because of the the crisis, but you show that customers really love the product and all. Um, I think that helps. Clearly profitability is king. Being able to show that you have a a uh, product, a business that that has profitability, even if you're 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 in one little market, but you show that market's profitable, and then there's a path to expanding that out to multiple markets. Um, I would do that, but customers have to like the product, and I guess you know revenue, you know, and profitability do are an indication of that. Steve, do you have any? Yeah. Well, um, I think if you're an entrepreneur, an operator, founder of a company, that's um, you have to do all those things. Um, I think you have to try to grow while you're, even though you're trying to preserve customers, you still have to grow. You see, there. There are customers out there. Uh, people are taking meetings just like this. Everyone's on Zoom, on Hangouts, Ring Central. They're all, they're all doing meetings right now. Um, some of our companies right now, in fact, all of our companies, the salespeople, the CEOs, every day are trying to get FaceTime just like this in front of their customers. Find out what they're thinking, planning, um, have realistic. It, the, the one thing I, I one thing I don't a pet peeve of mine for any entrepreneur is to go into a board meeting or discussion and have unrealistic um, or make unrealistic statements. Like we're, we're going to get this and we're going to get that. And they do that based more on hope and less on getting validation from the customer. So find out what your customers are. Um, you know, be willing to, to negotiate on price and terms and all those things right now. Showing profitability is very important. Going back to on fiber, even though we went down to 43 people, we continued to grow every single quarter throughout the life of our company. That means we added new customers. Um, we maintained our price thresholds. Uh, we, 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 we eventually got to profitability um, within a telecom company. And basically, we had a pivot. We didn't do any more capital intensive. Uh, so think about your business and the fundamentals of the business. And, you know, what's the new reality right now? Um, I like it. You know, is king and and show real demand. Show demand. And this goes back to value. What is your value product? Just keep on asking yourself that. How, but be willing to work. Uh, Customer service all the time. Um, but you really have to understand what the customer is doing right now. And you can't get that just by talking to one customer. You got to talk to your entire customer role. And then you have to prospect for new business. That's, that's, that's just the reality. Um, I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing, keep growing. We, we've got it. We've got another one here from, uh, from our co-host tops. Gretchen, you were deploying capital during the dot-com bubble and during the 2008 recession. What metrics were you looking at before investing back then? So, I mean, I never really look at specific metrics per se. Um, So in my business, my fund, Lake Street Capital, was a secondary. So we did not go out and make new investments. We we bought a portfolio of investments and we inherited investments. So I was always looking, and the only companies we valued were companies that actually had revenue and profits and customers um, because they're easier to value. Um, so therefore, metrics were profitability, growth, um, the market size, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, the bubble, I was really not investing per se, but um, but advising companies. And we were really caught up in the, uh, I was dealing with companies that were pretty capital ten- intensive because I came from the world of raising capital. So that's where my value add was to these companies. Um, so I'm not sure. I can answer that with a specific, easy answer. But no, I think profitability is a theme that you guys have touched on throughout this whole episode, that 
a lot of companies, especially if they're turning in from Detroit, they are profitable or have sales right now. I think we have that mindset naturally in Detroit and maybe Gretchen can probably attest to that Yeah. Um, now that she's here back home with us and has been here for a while. But that is something that I think comes natural to us and it's a good reminder. Right. It's better to be smaller and profitable and show that path to how you're going to grow and expand than to be trying to be in many markets and spending money, you know, without proving the profitable model. So I agree. I like that to be small, better to be smaller and profitable. I think that's key. Uh, next up, we've got Ashley from Detroit with Rizar. What is the one piece of advice that you wish you would have known about being a business owner that you know now? Steve? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I've been an entrepreneur three times, ran companies. Um, it's hard. Um, the sacrifices, I mean, there's, you, you can talk about the financial impact and, and, um, but it takes a lot of work and commitment. Um, and, um, I think times like this just really underscores, um, all those things. And I think this also, you know, when the market gets turned on its head, it really exposes the underbelly of every business. It shows what's really the toughest part of the business and it exposes it. It also exposes, you have to take a look at yourself and, you know, be honest with you. So what are your weaknesses? What are your strengths? Do you have the right team? Do you have the right people around you? I really have to emphasize um, that's something we didn't really talk on, but be, I mean, I know it sounds pretty common sense, but I, I cannot emphasize this enough. It's just um, make sure you have the right people on your team job um and that's that's because the right people with the right with the right skills experience but also the right stamina are going to be able to survive through this and that's something you should probably do anyway but especially when you're picking a team and hiring people make sure that you pick the best people you can because those are the people that you're going to rely on and believe it or not during hard times you're going to probably spend more time with them than you are with your family Especially if you're an entrepreneur and a founder. That's why I tell everybody about being a founder. Like, pick your partner, pick your co-founder as if you're picking your spouse because it is to get that personal. I like that. Gretchen, you have anything to add there? Well, I guess uh, my perspective is more on the outside investor advisor. But, um, you know, selling, when you get the opportunity to reap some of the rewards from your um, investments to uh, to sell, I wish, you know, I had sold my digital island stock, um, you know, at 120 and at 80 and 60. But, um, and, you know, as a venture capitalist, I always sold as soon as I got um, the opportunity to sell and a, a, if a company went public, because I'm not being paid by my investors to be a public money manager. So my job was to get it through to the public offering and then either distribute the stock to them or distribute cash to them, um, but what their preference was, but, but personally learning to take that money off the table and, um, and not be greedy. I'm, I'm going to add a little twist onto what Steve said there. He, he talked about how hard it is. And I agree. It's so hard. But like I was telling my son here, Colin, the other day, the things that have been hardest in life, like starting businesses have been some of the most rewarding things. So, so I'll add that, that, that starting a company has been the, the thing I'm most professionally proud of is, is having worked in startups even the ones that failed, which which most of mine did. Failure is part of it. I mean, it's. Um, right, we got another question. Out, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Father. Uh, go ahead, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, so you know, I, I think there's one good story out of this, um, and I got to know him recently. It's a guy named Brian Acton. He was the founder of a company called WhatsApp, and um, listening to his story is one of the most. Um, is, is, the, is one of the most encouraging stories, uh, entrepreneur stories I, I've heard. And he started it, um, he came up with the idea during the 2008 crash. And it started really in 2009. He got rejected. Probably he pitched 50 people. Um, but he had something, and this goes back to product and having something of value. He went. Back then, 
the messaging and text hadn't really evolved other than SMS. And, uh, his thing was encryption and privacy. And, um, and so, but listening to his story and how many things that he had to do to sacrifice to start a company, um, this goes to your point about being a business owner and entrepreneur. You know, you, you really have to, um, you really have to have a strong will because like in his case, not only he tried to get some work, he, he applied to Facebook. He got rejected. Um, he got turned down every time. For every <laughs> and it's profoundly ironic that Facebook would go back and buy him for $22 billion years later. So, um, ironic and inspiring. I honor, I, ironic and inspiring. And if you met the guy, he's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. He, he's a really good guy. Um, and so, um, but I think that story, if anybody has a chance to read that story and look at it and what he went through uh, leading up to, during, and through that time, uh, it is very inspiring. I know we have a, a couple minutes left here, guys. I want to be just sensitive everyone's time at one. Uh, so hopefully we can grab one or two more of these questions. Let's, let's do this. Let's do four minutes and four questions. If we can. <laughs> I'll, I'll somebody and then and then you answer in like 30 seconds i'm going to the next one okay steve this one's for you from japan co-host japan steve you're working on managing a portfolio right now what conversations are you having with companies that only focused on growth and never generated revenue well um right now none of our companies are just focused on growth now they're um i mean every company that goes through a series a has capital has to show a plan for growth because that's where you fund them. There's something there, but right now it's, um, I should say it's more controlled growth. Um, expenses have been cut. So we're asking people to really, um, to make exceptional performances by keeping costs down while growing the company. So we're asking the best out of all of our entrepreneurs and all the executives of the company. So, keep keep costs uh, down and grow the company. Yeah. Next, next up we've got from Brenda again, I hear that 4% of venture capital goes to women entrepreneurs. Do you see this changing anytime soon? And are there new opportunities for women being offered in today's environment? I am not really on the LP side. Well, okay. So as a venture capitalist, um, you know, again, I wasn't giving out new money to new opportunities. So I guess I can't answer this question. Well, do you, Steve, do you have an opinion about this? Well, in our first fund, uh, 40% Forty percent of the founders were were women. Um, on this fund, two of the co-founders are are women. They're playing key operating roles, like CEO, um, uh, VP of engineering, those type of roles. So, um, I you know, I, there's a lot of talk about this um, from our fund's perspective. We fund based on on the credibility of the founder, uh, not their gender, not their race, not their creed, or anything like that. I look at their backgrounds. Are they, do we believe this person can drive and build a company, build out a category before, and even thrive during a time like this, you know? So um, I, I would like to think that's changing pretty dramatically. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I, I think more people than not today are, are looking to fund women. And, and it sounds like it did. Brenda's saying in the chat that amazing, Steve. Okay, next up, we've got Ida. She's, she's been a big fan of the show in here. Uh, she started Automation Works Institute, a Cisco cybersecurity certification prep school that is short-term alternative to college, autoworks.org. She's been preparing her fundraise uh, April 15th by getting into accelerators and approaching seed funds. She's asking, what should I do now that COVID-19 has decimated the economy? Um, well, it's a, it's a tough time, obviously, to be a new company, a new raising money. But what I would do now is start to build relationships. Um, and maybe you've already been doing that. But go out, not really asking for money, but starting to network and get to know people. Tell them about your what you're doing. Um, because really funding comes over time people people can spend a year getting to know an entrepreneur before they actually fund them um but i would focus more on that as opposed to getting dollars in the bank so building relationships uh, instead of cash 
I just want to chime in. I think this came up on a last show, but most accelerators are going virtual. They're still fundraising and they're still investing. So Techstars and a lot of other ones are still active. So that could still be the path for you. Okay. Next, last question. We're doing it. One minute from Will. He's, he's been a big fan of the show too. Gretchen, what are your thoughts on VC investment into Africa? Where do you, where would these funds originate? And do you think there will be more or less funds flowing into the continent? I really have no knowledge about um, investments in Africa, so I can't answer that. But Steve, do you have any insights there? Well, um, we did have one company who had a customer base. They're still um, alive today. <laughs> Thank God. Um, they actually had some traction in Africa. Africa, you know, like their big private equity funds like TPG, Tech Specific Group, are pouring billions of dollars into infrastructure in Africa. I think Africa is going to boom in a lot of different areas. Everything's new for the first time. And they don't have copper in the streets, so they're building fiber networks. So in about 10 years, they're going to be, you know, the infrastructure is going to be there to really have the economy grow. I think uh, digital currency is going to be big there, telecom, billing, all these things. The entire infrastructure is starting from scratch, so there's opportunity all over the place. I think the financing is going to come from funds, uh, I think like uh, Index Ventures looks at companies. So I think the companies down from the UK all the way down to Africa, maybe in the Middle East, are going to start doing some of the funding. Um, for for a company for for a VC like us, early stage, it's too far afield. We just don't have people on the ground there. But I, I agree, it's booming, and I think there should be dollars spent to and opportunities. But I think you really need people who understand how to work that that environment and, and that place, because that's a different culture or different um, buying signals and different deals. I, I, I wouldn't gamble there, but there are those who really understand it. Um, and I know some people too. So if you're interested, you can, you can send me a note and I'll send you one guy who left TPG to start his own fund. Um, and so I think he'd be really good. And he was born and raised there. Well, well thank you. So yeah, it seems like it seems like we don't have any specific knowledge of Africa, but in general, it seems like the trend is up. And hey, I want I want to thank our our, our guests. I want to thank Steve thank and Gretchen, and I want to thank co-host Tapan who was in the chat and thank Amanda. You. This is the Coping with COVID lunch hours. Oh, we hope to see you Monday, where we'll be talking about crisis communications. Oh, and Wednesday, Wednesday we have Brad Feld, the co-founder of TechStars, coming on. Yeah. And then Friday, we have Eric from the Hustle Fund, who does invest in a lot of women and minority-owned companies. So, so those questions that were coming up, please bring them back next week, too. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to our Coping with COVID series, brought to you by Bamboo Detroit. If you would like to view all of our virtual episodes, you can go to www dot crowdcast.io forward slash David Silva Smith. Again, that's forward slash D-A-V-I-D-S-I-L-V-A-S-M-I-T-H. This podcast is produced and brought to you by Bamboo Detroit, located in the heart of downtown Detroit. Bamboo Detroit specializes in co-working space and amenities for entrepreneurs and forward thinkers. Bamboo Detroit, where we do more together because Detroit is for doers. If you would like to support our podcast, you can become a sponsor of the Doers Network. We have gold, silver, and bronze packages available. If you have a business you would like to promote, you will be able to reach over 10,000 listeners around the world each month at your fingertips. So if you want to reach our audience of founders, CEOs, innovators, and leaders, become a sponsor today. For more information, email us at info at bamboodetroit.com. We appreciate your support by subscribing to our podcast right here on The Doers Network. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Doers Podcast, where actives grow and thrive. The Doers Podcast is produced by Bamboo Detroit Network. For more information, visit us at bamboodetroit.com.